Chapter 1. Repentance from Acts that Lead to Death Repentance is the means by which a person changes his or her nature from a sinful nature to one habitually dominated by the Spirit, implying also a changed mindset. In his letter to the Romans, Paul wrote, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what the nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Paul defined a sinful nature versus living in accordance with the Spirit, each according to a particular mindset. Therefore, the change from a sinful nature to a spiritual one is accomplished fundamentally by changing one's mindset. This fundamental change of mindsets refers to the conflict between a person's soul and spirit. The human being comprises three parts, the spirit, the soul, and the body. The spirit within human beings, originating out of the person of God as a gift from God himself, is native to the world of God, that of spirit and of heaven. The soul bridges the gap between the natural world and that of the spirit, translating God's divine nature and eternal purposes to the natural world. God created mankind so that he would be seen and understood within the natural world. Making mankind spirit, soul, and flesh facilitates God's underlying purpose in putting his son into the earth. The soul and the spirit each have three components, a mind, a will, and a heart. The mind collects and assimilates information upon which the spirit or soul bases its view of reality. The will assembles the resources available to the spirit or soul to interact with the creation and to actualize that reality. The heart supplies the motivation for the pursuit of the reality. In the intended harmonious functioning of the two, one soul governs the actions of his body, and in turn the mind, will, and heart of the soul are meant to be informed by and obsequious to the spirit. The spirit is the part of the person's being that is in close fellowship and communion with God at all times. The mind, the will, and the heart of the spirit are informed by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when one is led by the spirit, his view of reality is the same as God's view. This permits God to act vicariously through mankind and allows him to be seen in the natural world. The fall destroyed this elegant balance and freed the soul to act independently of the spirit. The decision to disobey God and the immediate consequence to that decision offer insight into the soul's process for making choices and its view of reality, in contrast to one being led by the Spirit. In Genesis 3.6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Eve chose to eat the fruit based on its appeal to the senses and the appeal of the enemy's argument that it would grant hidden wisdom. This decision-making process contrasts the blind obedience to God resulting from their complete trust in God, which had previously governed her in Adam's existence. This obedience can be characterized as blind obedience because the eyes of their souls were closed, meaning the soul's mind, will, and heart that places mankind in competition with God had not yet corrupted their view of reality, informed only by the Spirit of God. Once their soul's eyes were opened, their changed view of reality immediately asserted itself. In Genesis 3, 7b-10, through 10, we read, They realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid. They no longer saw themselves as spirit beings, 
clothed in flesh, but instead they saw themselves only as flesh, naked and vulnerable. With this new vision of reality, their needs became focused on survival, and their imperatives were provision and protection. Previously, they had known that they were spirit beings clothed in flesh, and therefore not naked, and they had been familiar with God, who was also spirit. Once mankind chose independence from God, the mind of the spirit, which is completely dependent on the Holy Spirit, was no longer the source of their information. Thus, they were limited to interpreting their physical surroundings to construct a view of reality. The only will by which they could function was their own. So they provided for and protected themselves out of their own power, by fashioning clothing for themselves and hiding from God. And they showed their changed hearts when they explained that they did these things out of fear. Human nature changed in that moment from one governed by the spirit to one governed by the soul. Now Adam's actions imposed the mind, will, and heart of his soul between man's spirit and the spirit of God, which had previously informed every aspect of mankind's being. The awakening and the dominance of the soul was the consequence of choosing to live by a reality independent of God. The result was a changed view of reality and separation from God, the very description of sin. The loss of community with God also resulted in the loss of provision and protection supplied by the Spirit. Mankind assumed these twin burdens, which have become the primary imperatives continuously shaping the human civilization. As a consequence of the soul's awakening and independence, a person is capable of being of two different mindsets, as Paul taught in his letter to the Romans. There is a mindset that is susceptible to sinful nature, and there is a mindset that is in accordance with the Spirit. God gave human beings a spirit out of his own person, so that they may be led by the Spirit of God. As it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 11-14, For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given to us. This is what we speak, not in the words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths and spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Only one who is led by the Spirit can know the mind of God. One who is not so led simply can't. That person must have a different source of information, one that is confounded by spiritual things. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, and devilish. The mind of the spirit is spiritually discerned, but the mind of the soul receives its information from three sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil. As an example of the wisdom that is not spiritually discerned, Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was pleasing to the eye, sensual, she had the desire to possess the wisdom that it promised, earthly or worldly, and the information regarding the possibility of hidden wisdom was supplied from the devil, whose motivation was to seduce man from reliance upon the wisdom of God. That's devilish. These influences are not only susceptible to the enemy's manipulation, but also exclude wisdom that comes from the Spirit of God. They are corrupt, and a mindset that is based on these things is also corrupt. When a person is dominated by his soul, he can harbor only a sinful nature, because the reality that determines his thoughts and actions is contrary to that which the Spirit of God would impart to the mind, will, and heart of the person's spirit. 
If one's thoughts and actions come from a reality that is not spiritually discerned, that person cannot also be led by the Spirit of God. This condition is properly defined as having a sinful nature. When the Spirit of God informs the mind of a person's spirit, that person can understand both spiritual things and the natural world with God's wisdom. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God, so it does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Whereas the mind of the Spirit is not susceptible to the enemy's deception, a mind dominated by sinful nature is hostile to God and unable to conform to God's will. The resulting behavior is acts that lead to death. Death in this context is best understood as a state of being separated from God. Acts that lead to death are acts that separate a person from God. God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. Therefore, it is possible to be dead while yet alive. Repentance from acts that lead to death is the elementary principle of changing one's mindset from the view of reality inherited from Adam that opposes a way of life supported by the Spirit of God. Christ accomplishes the first iteration of this principle when a person chooses to die to his or her inherited sinful nature and be born again of the Spirit. This repentance represents the death of the right to direct one's own life. The changed mindset comes from the changed sovereignty that governs one's life. This is the first step in the process of being born again and translated into the body of Christ. Now, note that this process also involves two of the baptisms, which are discussed further in chapter 3 of this study series. This repentance begins the migration of the rule of self, susceptible to the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life, to the rule of Christ and a nature that is habitually dominated by the Spirit of God. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. In Christ, we're assembled into one spiritual body, which means that we are reconnected to the spiritual reality of God himself. However, the complete change from soul to spirit is not accomplished immediately. Christ works out this change in each believer over time. Repentance from acts that lead to death is necessary both to overcome the schemes of the enemy and to mature a son of God. This is a continually repeating process for individuals as they mature in Christ and for the corporate son as new revelation from the Spirit of God matures the body of Christ. Acts that lead to death are inherently acts of sin. Paul taught, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Such acts are not always overtly opposed to mandates plainly stated in Scripture. Many of the choices that lead to sinful acts are informed by a view of reality influenced by the wisdom of the world, the flesh, and the enemy's schemes. One's vision of reality relates directly to that person's identity as a son of God. Restoring the Identity of a Son when mankind began to see itself as flesh and a different being from God, who is spirit, it lost the identity as sons of God. God is the father of our spirits, and it is in our nature as spirits that we are sons of God. When Adam hid from God, he rejected completely an identity associated with God. His mindset was shifted from being a son and an heir of God to being merely a created being. 
He lost the identity of a son that was conferred upon him by his unique association with God. When Adam was no longer informed by his spirit, he could not grasp a relationship to God, a spirit, as his father. He became fatherless. Immediately, he set about supplying his own provision and his own protection, creating a culture of survival around these two imperatives. This new mindset, which elevates self-provision and protection to its highest imperatives and is not connected to one's identity in his father, created the culture of the orphan, which has dominated mankind's history. Within the culture of the orphan, the imperatives of provision and protection nullify the mandates of a spiritual life. This culture may be so ingrained in an individual that these may not be conscious or overtly sinful choices. However, fear motivates and undergirds this culture, keeping the individual susceptible to the lusts of provision and protection, effectively separating that person from God. The culture of an orphan is incompatible with the culture of a son. Satan introduced the culture of the orphan as an alternative to Adam's existence as a son of God. Satan himself is an angel, and like all angels, he was created to serve. This culture is rooted in Satan's nature as a servant. A servant can never understand the position of a son, since a servant does not have the relationship to God that a son has. Whereas a son is concerned with the representation of his father, and he is the heir of all that the father has, a servant views his purpose as performing a task and gaining consideration or reward. A servant looks for the mutuality of an exchange in which to find his value, and his goal is an equitable reward for his service. A son is unconcerned about his identity being related to the adequacy of his performance and of a task. He already owns all his father has to offer. The son's primary interest is to accurately and exactly reflect the character of his father. As a son of God, Adam was given to the representation of the interests of his father, but his decision to separate himself from God rejected this divine purpose and seeded an identity of son related to God as a father. He opened himself to an identity based upon his performance. God acknowledged that change when he said to Adam, By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. God was not condemning Adam to a life of toil as punishment for his infraction. Instead, God was acknowledging the natural consequences of Adam's choice. By rejecting his identity as a son, Adam's only other choice for an identity was that of a servant. As a member of the body of Christ, a believer who is a son is meant to model his life after Christ, the patterned son. The Holy Spirit enables this way of life, while the conflict introduced in the garden highlights Satan's way of life. Satan successfully deceived Adam into shifting his view of reality from spirit to soul, and son to servant, an orphan. The shift in perspective was immediately evident as Adam's first subsequent acts were to provide for himself and to protect himself by covering himself and hiding from God. He went from viewing God as a father to viewing him as an enemy. In that moment, mankind's relationship to God shifted from being sons to looking for a mutuality of exchange perceived in the arrangement by which man strives to please God in exchange for God's favor. The Holy Spirit does not enable a son of God's way of life within the culture of an orphan. Repentance and a changed mindset enable the changing of one's culture, as that person matures into a son who can represent God the Father by his or her way of life. The Schemes of the Enemy 
A believer is susceptible to the schemes of the enemy when the culture of the orphan continues to influence any area of the person's life. Changing one's culture involves a process that must be worked out over time. This is why repentance and the changing of one's mindset is a continually repeating process as a believer matures. When a son is rightly aligned in his relationship to God, his spirit rules over his soul. When, however, he takes on the mindset of an orphan, that balance is disturbed, which results in the soul submerging the spirit with concerns related to provision and protection. The urgencies inherent in this pursuit leave a person open and susceptible to the enemy's suggestions. Whatever actions follow this pursuit inevitably separate the person from the life that is supported by the spirit. Now, for believers, these pursuits are areas in which the person defaults to his or her own abilities and resources. The imperatives of provision and protection blind the individual to the identity and destiny as a son of God, highlighting the culture of the orphan as the basis by which one becomes separated from his identity and engages in acts that lead to death. The act of repentance and returning to the mindset of the Spirit allows the Holy Spirit to expose the soul's dominance, which is the first step to regaining an identity as a son of God. One's identity as a spirit and son of God and the dominance of the human spirit, which is derived from the Holy Spirit, negate the carnal, sensual, and devilish influences that would preoccupy the person with the overriding imperatives of provision and protection. This process frees the believer from the culture of the orphan and the prison of lust and self-preservation. It repositions the Son of God for the active pursuit of God with the goal of being reconciled to God Himself. In any area where a person's soul is a preeminence over the spirit, the person is entrapped by the enemy's deceptions, even in his or her efforts to change. One may discern this condition in the revealing of the soul's nature governing the person's reality. The mind of the soul produces the orphan culture, defining itself apart from God as Father and seeking survival by the pursuit of provision and protection. The soul's will is to accomplish change through the person's own power or abilities. Moreover, the soul is motivated by fear, and all attempts to change one's condition that are rooted in the soul are motivated by fear of failure and loss. Without a change in mindset, one may desire to change his sinful nature, but even in that desire, remain under the influence of the enemy. So when is repentance necessary? One of the many reasons to study the principles of repentance is to make one available to the revelation that repentance is necessary either for oneself or to aid another. The need for repentance and a changed mindset is revealed particularly through the conditions of self-reliance for extended periods of time. A person in this condition develops learned responses motivated by fear. Fear, and an orphan culture, make way for the world, the flesh, and the devil to influence the individual, often subtly. Self-preservation, together with self-provision, form the prison in which the person's soul is captured, the pursuit of these dual imperatives will highlight the enemy's schemes for the person inasmuch as the person's emotions and motivations exhibit a range of fears by which he or she makes decisions. This influence is interpreted correctly as demonic activity present in that person's life. Although the average person exhibiting some or most of these traits may not be actually controlled by a demonic entity residing within the person, the broader sphere of demonic activity influences not only the person's view of life, but also the emotional responses that commonly accompany these views. A person may exhibit emotional paralysis, depression, hopelessness, despair, anger, and the like, as whole areas of the individual's life are controlled by fear. 
These are signs classically associated with demonic activity. Demonic activity should not be construed purely as related to the residence of a demonic presence within the body of a person, but should be considered in the wider ambit of the influence of demonically sourced conclusions and the emotions that they stir. The remedy, however, is the same. In order to overturn the effects of demonic activity within the life of a believer, it is necessary to restore the divine order of spirit over soul. This process begins with changing the mindset from a servant or an orphan back to that of a son. As the son grows in maturity, he should be instructed in and he should learn to understand the competing views of the soul and of the spirit, learning to identify the mindsets that make one susceptible to demonic influence and sin. Although much emphasis has been placed on deliverance, evicting a resident demonic presence, the failure to change the underlying culture of susceptibility to demonic influence leaves one delivered from the entity but still susceptible to the same influences that produced the infiltration in the first place. Clearly, where a demonic presence has taken residence within one's soul, the remedy includes the eviction of the demon. However, if the house is cleaned and swept, yet the underlying condition has not yet been remedied, the demon is apt to return, bringing his companions with him. It is therefore necessary to deal with the underlying condition by which a person would remain open to attack and influence. That process results in the fundamental changing of the operative mindset. A believer must therefore be instructed personally in this process, because each person's susceptibility is as unique as the individual, and general instructions rarely produce an effective result. Every believer should have been introduced to this foundational precept as a means by which they could readjust their status regularly to reflect a correct alignment with the heavens and to keep from falling into the traps of the enemy meant to impede the progress towards maturity. That is the normal growth path of a believer and should be practiced routinely throughout one's life. Repentance is inseparable from the practices associated with maturity. The enemy is unrelenting in his search for opportunity to hobble the believer, and as a son of God, each believer must be vigilant and unrelenting in rejecting these advances. The enemy will craft new and unique approaches, but he is limited by his nature as a servant. Moreover, his schemes are always based upon these familiar methodologies. The Role of Spiritual Fathers a necessary and indispensable aid to this process is having somebody in the role of a spiritual father who keeps constant watch over one's soul and who helps identify the drift from the path of a son to that of an orphan. A spiritual father can discern and arrest the mindset before it takes root and before the spiritual son recognizes the drift from his or her own path. And a spiritual father is one who carries the grace and influence necessary to delve into the deep roots of fatherlessness and the orphan culture that make one open to the enemy's machinations. A spiritual father is one whose competence to do this is well advanced. John described a spiritual father as one who knows God the Father. Such a father is able to help younger sons of God to mature and to overcome the schemes and the deceptions of the enemy. John wrote, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is a foundation of the order in the house of God for the maturing of his sons. Learning the stage of repentance from acts that lead to death is fundamental to one maturing in Christ. 
And repentance from acts that lead to death is necessary for avoiding or engaging in overcoming the enemy's efforts to separate a son of God from God the Father after the son has been reconciled to God. The change in one's identity, becoming a son of God, with a renewed mindset is evident by the life that the person lives. A son of God does not live as a slave or an orphan. If somebody claims to be a son yet lives as a slave, such a person has not embraced the next elementary doctrine, faith toward God. Where repentance from acts that lead to death begin and allow these changes, faith toward God provides the evidence of actual change while allowing the Spirit to work through the believer to effect change in his or her circumstances.